Coming up next, a special show about early stage breast cancer on Upstate's HealthLink on air. A nursing administrator shares how she became a patient after she was diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ. Came in a phone call, um, and I just remember the physician saying, this is, so it's ductal carcinoma in situ. A surgeon and a radiation oncologist tell about a new option for some patients with early stage breast cancer that combines surgery and radiation. This treatment really represents evolution in our thinking and um, technological advances in radiation. And a medical oncologist talks about how some women with breast cancer can skip chemotherapy. Certain types uh, of breast cancer patients, recently we are learning that they could avoid chemotherapy. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special show devoted to early-stage breast cancer, we'll learn about a new option for some patients called intraoperative radiation therapy. Then we'll hear which patients with breast cancer may be able to safely forego chemotherapy. But first, a nurse shares her experience after being diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The American Cancer Society projects that more than 60,000 women will be diagnosed with in situ breast cancer this year. Here to share her experience with diagnosis and treatment of this non-invasive cancer is Nancy Page. She's the Chief Nursing Officer for Upstate University Hospital. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Now, before we talk about your personal experience, I'd like to ask you, since you're part of the hospital's senior leadership, you're involved in approving big expenditures. So tell us about the purchase of equipment for something called IORT. So IORT is Intraoperative Radiation Therapy. And I'd say maybe it was uh, 18 months ago um, where the hospital officers were looking at large capital. Um, so those are pieces of equipment, uh, buildings, things you spend a lot of money on when you say large capital. Um, and the IORT was a piece of equipment that we were looking at. Uh, and when we, when we vetted the equipment, I could see that this would allow a woman with a particular type of breast cancer, non-invasive, to have their surgery, so what most people refer to as a lumpectomy, so have their surgery and their radiation all in one day. So you would not be returning for 15 successive radiation treatments. Wow. Uh, so at that time, I just thought, wow, you know, just sitting in your own seat, um, what a quality of life impact. Uh, the outcomes were very equitable. Um, it just seemed like a very wise investment for us. And we would only then be the second center in New York State, Memorial Sloan Kettering being the other, that would offer this for women with uh, breast cancer. And you couldn't have known then that you were approving something that you would later end up using as a patient? I had no idea. You know, certainly always have gotten annual mammograms since I turned 40 many years ago, um, but had no idea it was something that would benefit myself. So take us back to July 2018. So that's when you went to Wellspring for the routine mammogram, right? Right. Summer, summertime is kind of my do all my catch up routine um, medical care that you need to do to take care of yourself, you know, preventative. So went for my routine mammogram, annual mammogram at Wellspring, where I've been going for many, many years at our community campus. Um, and then um, I got a call that uh, they wanted me to come back in. Um, because there was a change from the uh, prior mammogram, um, and they would like to do a biopsy. So that had to worry you. To it hear it always, yeah. I don't know how it couldn't worry any patient. Um, I mean, they you, you do a biopsy because there's something suspicious there. Uh, certainly a large percentage of those can come out benign, um, but also a percentage of those can come out as cancer. Well, um so so you had a period of time between knowing something was wrong or unusual and getting the biopsy. Um, were you just filled with worry the whole time or how did you deal with it? I, you know, it's you can only put it to the back of your mind for so many hours out of the day. So it would, you know, all of a sudden come forward and you always think, well, what if? And then the other part of you thinks, well, 
can't have no. That doesn't make any sense. I don't. I have a maternal grandmother uh, who had breast cancer, but very very late, um, probably eighty years old when she was diagnosed. So um, I think it comes forward, and then you suppress it, and it comes forward again. So it certainly is. A, I would say a, a constant state of worry. So having your nursing background, do you think that was a a benefit to you, or do you think that made it worse because you know so much about what could go wrong? I think the benefit is is that as a nurse, a physician, uh, you know, if we are a clinician in healthcare, you can read the literature and more quickly understand it. And when you sit with your medical team, you can come up with more educated questions. The bad part, um, and my clinician colleagues understand this, is that sometimes you too, too quickly go down the parade of terribles. So what if, what if this is invasive breast cancer? What if, you know, um, so you can too quickly go down that road. So that's something that I think I worked really hard not to go, not to go down that road. Did you feel different? Did you, were there any symptoms or anything that you looked back and were like, oh, I should have. Yeah, no symptoms whatsoever. No, um, there was no lump in my breast. Breast didn't look any different. No drainage. No. So there was nothing. So I this just really, really underscores the importance of preventive health care. So what do you remember about um, learning that you were diagnosed with breast cancer? Did it come in a phone call or a... Uh, it came in a phone, yeah, it definitely came in a phone call. Um, and I just remember the physician saying, this is, so it's ductal carcinoma in situ. So it was a cancer confined to the, the duct. We all have milk dust. Women all have milk ducts in their breasts confined to the duct. I, I knew that was a better type of cancer. Uh, and then the very next very next thing is this is the best type of breast cancer you could possibly have. Because in situ means it hasn't spread. It means it's right? confined. It's confined. You know, okay. it's confined. Um, and the ductal carcinoma, it's confined to that, to that milk duct and hasn't spread outside the walls of that. Um, but still you think, oh, you know, yippee, I have the best cancer right. I could possibly have. <laughs> This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Chief Nursing Officer Nancy Page. She's sharing a personal story about her breast cancer diagnosis and treatment at Upstate. So after your biopsy and after your diagnosis, um, you and your husband went to the Upstate Cancer Center to see the multidisciplinary team. Tell us what that appointment was like. Um, what was so unique about that appointment, they they clearly let you know you would be here for the afternoon. So anticipate a three to a four hour appointment. Um, But what we also knew is that we would be able to talk to the breast surgeon. We would be able to talk to the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist. And then we also spoke with a geneticist. So in one visit, we were able to go from one to the other to the other. So I think as far as getting all of the questions you had at least that day answered, it wasn't, you know, oh, I have to remember three days from now is my radiation oncology appointment. Now let me bring these questions. Um, and that entire team had talked about my case before each of them came in, uh, which I thought was really beneficial. So they, they already, I think they already had, well, here's the possible approaches for this patient. Um, so I, I didn't feel like I was getting different messages from, uh, from different physicians. So they had clearly already talked about your situation yes. and what they thought would be right. Already looked at the pathology. um, So all of that had already been discussed. So did you have to make a decision whether you wanted the IORT, the intraoperative radiation therapy, or did you, was there an alternative that you could have? The alternative I did have, there were actually two alternatives. Um, The alternative uh, for radiation treatment would have been, I'll call it standard radiation treatment. Uh, 15 radiation treatments, uh, pretty much 15 days in a row. You know, it's Monday through Friday, but um, so over, delivered over three weeks, every single day, Monday through Friday, would be the, the standard treatment. Um, I also could have gone into a, a clinical trial because what they don't know about this type of breast cancer is if they just let it sit, does it just sit? Does it really, does it not grow? Does it not become invasive? Do women not need surgery? Do they not need, or do they need surgery, but do they not need radiation? Um, So I actually had choices. um, And I, for myself, I chose the interoperative radiation, uh, looking at the outcomes, um, 
I view them as pretty equitable to the standardized radiation therapy, it, quality of life. It, it, it's a one and done, the surgery and the radiation all in one day. Um, and as much as the radiation oncologist assured me that with the standard treatment, there's very little effects on other organs in your body with the radiation, um, I certainly wanted to spare any chance that I would experience that. Now, did you purposefully choose to get your care at Upstate? Where, where you work and where you would encounter coworkers? I did. I always think about, uh, I mean, I always think about myself and my family, where is the best care? Um, not only in this area, but even outside, if you chose to go outside. Um, we're only, there's only one other center in this state that offers intraoperative radiation, and we're one of them. Um, I had great faith in the surgeon, Dr. Lisa Lai. I actually had known her even as a resident. Um, but just had great faith in her skills and had heard wonderful feedback from staff. Uh, I, I think what I, w- I was very lucky, but didn't know it going into it, that I had an all-female team. So my radiologist who did the bi- biopsy was fem- female, Dr. Ann Weller. Um, Dr. Lisa Lai, the breast surgeon, Dr. Anna Shapiro, the radiation oncologist, uh, Dr. Abby, her name for short, the medical oncologist, uh, at the geneticist, uh, Dr. Morris, I think, but all women. And uh, usually that I didn't seek out women for healthcare. My, my uh, daughters were all delivered by male family practitioners, great experience. But this, this was different. Um, just really pleased that Upstate had that all-female team for me. And it just happened that they were all females, but um, why, did that, uh, why did you end up liking that? I think what I think it was, uh, um, well, Dr. Lisa Lai and uh, Dr. Shapiro, Anna Shapiro, is talking about cosmetic outcomes. And you're, so you're sitting there thinking, well, this is somebody who knows what that image looks like in the mirror. Um, and I hadn't even asked about it. I think they, they just, they brought it up. It's just, it's something you're naturally uh, going to want to talk about. So uh, just, it was, it was great to have them. Well, let's talk about the day of the procedure. Um, so you had a little bit of time to plan for this. Um, so what was it like? Did you come in early the morning of? Or? I think it's a t- what, what all patients typically think of, uh, you know, an, an operating surgical procedure. You get here very early in the morning, 6.15 or so. Um, and then after you register, so you go through, you know, getting a bracelet and your insurance information and all that stuff, uh, is going to the surgical center. And there the nurses really prepare you for the procedure. Uh, so starting an IV, um, really talking with you about what to expect that day, even though I had, that had definitely been reviewed with me before. Um, kind of unique to this is then you go to the breast care center, the, at well, Wellspring. Um, so you go to Wellspring to have a wire placed um, in your breast. Uh, and it's kind of using, I'll say using mammography equipment. So they guide where the wire goes to really point the surgeon to exactly where that cancerous lesion is. And then you go back over with the wire still in place uh, to the operating room. Uh, procedure was very quick. Um, you know, the uh, Dr. Lai did her part in removing the cancer. And then Dr. Shapiro inserts a catheter and delivers the radiation. I was home by one o'clock that day. So she, the radiation is delivered right to where the area where Dr. Lai took, took right. out the tumor. And that was one of the, th- I mean, that's one of the, um, the benefits of this procedure is you're delivering the radiation literally to that bed of where that tumor was. So that was also one of the reasons why I chose this therapy is I thought, well, if they're going to get these evil cancer cells that decided they're going to live, um, and maybe we couldn't detect them all, you know, maybe right. you can't see them yet. You don't know um, that having that radiation delivered directly to that site, I also felt was a benefit. So very targeted. Did, did you feel different? Like, did it feel to you like something was move taken out of your body no not at all I mean you know after surgery obviously you're swollen um but no I didn't so is your treatment over after that treatment's not over my radiation treatment is over but um uh, women with breast cancer continue to take a hormone uh tamoxifen is a name many people know or um aromatase inhibitors is the other one 
Um, so you continue to take a hormone for five years because that is very well proven in studies to prevent breast cancer recurrence. So I continue to take that pill every single day for the next five years. And you still see your oncologist? Yes, I still see the medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, surgeon. Those visits will become more and more stretched apart, you know, hopefully as they don't find anything. Uh, Mammograms every six months as opposed to every year for at least, I think it's the first year. Um, And then I think it might go to, you know, back to every year. Good. Well, having gone through this and also being a, a caregiver, Um, What's your advice for women who face the diagnosis of DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ? You know, obviously look at, you know, look at the good information that's out there. So I would just, you know, caution that people go to to sites that either are either our upstate site, um, other well-known cancer centers. um, So, you know, you're getting good, really juried, you know, information. Uh, Come with all those questions for your team. You know, why this kind of treatment? Why not this kind of treatment? Um, what if like this, I would, I could have had a choice of what if I do do a clinical trial? What does that mean for me? Um, so I think the more questions you come with and the more comfortable you are asking those questions, uh, it really just benefits your care. Very good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I appreciate it. My guest has been Nancy Page, the chief nursing officer at Upstate and also a breast cancer survivor. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon and radiation oncologist describe the intraoperative radiation therapy option. There's a relatively new way of delivering radiation therapy in tandem with cancer surgery. It's called intraoperative radiation therapy, or IORT, and here to explain how it works is surgeon Lisa Lai and radiation oncologist Anna Shapiro. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Let's start with an explanation of what this therapy is. It stands for intraoperative radiation therapy. Does that mean it's radiation given during the operation? Yes. Dr. Lai? um, This is a treatment for women with early stage breast cancer and small tumors. So they are um, planning for lumpectomy. So they come and have the surgery to remove the tumor. And then after the surgery is complete, a balloon is placed inside the tumor bed. And a focused radiation dose is delivered right to that site. Inside the balloon? Yep, right into where the tumor used to lie in the breast. Okay. Then we remove that balloon, um, close up the cavity, complete the surgery, and um, the patient has completed both their surgery and their radiation for breast cancer all in one day. Wow. And does that eliminate the need, Dr. Shapiro, to have radiation afterward? That's exactly right, Amber. Um, This treatment really represents evolution in our thinking and um, technological advances in radiation. You know, we went from mastectomy to breast conserving treatment, and we've been doing breast conserving treatment, which is lumpectomy followed by whole breast radiation over the last 20 plus years. We recently, in the last 10 years, have moved to a shorter course of whole breast radiation, which is a three-week course. More recently, we really started to focus just on the lumpectomy cavity. This is really based on the observation that what we're trying to do is kill microscopic disease that's left after surgery, and the area that's most likely to harbor that disease is really immediately around the lumpectomy cavity in the tumor bed. So we're able to do that by placing the balloon and then internal radiation source directly inside the balloon. So what it does really is it minimizes... Uh, surrounding normal tissues from radiation exposure. So when we're talking about left-sided breast cancer, heart, lung, 
underneath we have a rib um, that we're trying to minimize the radiation exposure to. It allows us to do that. So um, this is the reason why we're able to deliver a single dose of radiation because we're so precise. And uh, I think patients will greatly benefit from that. I was going to ask Dr. Shapiro from the radiation mm-hmm. oncologist's point of view, mm-hmm. what's the benefit of this procedure? Is it just less it's risk really, to the surrounding tissue? That's right. It's really um, improved targeting. So less risk to surrounding tissues, which in the long run will lead to less radiation toxicity, less side effects. And really being able to visualize the cavity in the operating room um, allows us more precise radiation delivery. So less chance of missing your target and uh, you know, hopefully it'll lead to less recurrences, less toxicities. Neat. Um, and Dr. Lai, is there anything you'd like to add from sort of the surgeon's point of view about the benefit of doing things this way? You know, certainly we have all the benefits in terms of the clinical aspects, treating the cancer. This is certainly a very good and safe treatment for early stage breast cancer. Um, But also we must consider the um, patient factors and convenience factors. So, you know, breast cancer never strikes at a, a good time in life. We're busy people, and we have more important things to do. So this kind of um, condenses the treatment. Um, when a patient would ordinarily have a lumpectomy, spend a few weeks recovering, and then go on to have somewhere between three to six weeks of radiation, you know, in an outpatient center traveling there Monday through Friday, um, now we're able to complete both the surgery and radiation in one day so patients get back to their normal lives much quicker. And, you know, I think it's also um, important for patients who live far away. This is improving access to health care. Um, so, you know, as the way we have the program set up currently, we are the first place to offer this in central New York. Um, the other nearby centers are all in New York City. So um, this is an opportunity for a patient who's potentially able to travel to come for one day and to complete the treatment. Um, you know, they may not live close to a radiation center, so if they had to go you know, for a couple of weeks, um, that would be a major inconvenience and burden sure. on them and their family. So um, mm-hmm. it certainly makes treatment easier for patients. Now, you've said that it's for early stage breast cancer. So that means breast cancer that hasn't spread, right? So right. Um, beyond that, um, how do you decide which patients are eligible for this type of procedure? As long as they have an early stage, does that mean anyone would be a candidate? Um, We certainly evaluate everyone on an individual basis. So any new patient coming to our cancer center begins um, at our multidisciplinary clinic. That means we meet as a tumor board prior to the visit. So all of the doctors and staff involved in their care meet ahead of time to review their diagnosis, review their pathology, all of their imaging. And we make a list of the treatment options. Then we meet with the patients and their families who are there. Um, Each doctor meets with them one by one to present to them the options and treatment recommendations. Um, So uh, consideration for IORT would follow the similar process of uh, meeting with us and having a consultation and finding out what is the best treatment option for you. Are there some women who get diagnosed with an early-stage breast cancer who don't need radiation therapy? That's a very good question. Um, Certainly, you know, we look at all the factors, and each treatment plan is individualized. Um, In the past, many different things have been looked at in uh, clinical trials, including patient age. Um, We don't strictly go by patient's age. We'll look at, you know, their comorbidities, what their priorities are, um, and really try to individualize each patient's treatment plan. So if we have an elderly woman woman who has other comorbidities, she may be able to avoid radiation altogether. Uh, Someone who has very favorable disease biology, um, and elderly could avoid radiation altogether. So we really try to customize um, 
there's no one size fits all answer here. And I think that's a benefit of being seen by a treatment team where we can really look at all patient factors and uh, really patient leaves with a comprehensive plan moving forward. And just to um, comorbidity means like other health issues? Other health issues, you know, if someone has diabetes or heart problems, you know, if, you know, a woman has other priorities and may not value, you know, preserving a breast and would prefer to have a bigger surgery like a mastectomy, you know, all that's those still issues. An alternative, that's, maybe. that's still an alternative, okay. although that's become a lot less common these days. Um, so we, you know, we look at all the patient factors, and we have a lengthy discussion when we first meet. Well, can we talk about are there risks or reasons um, that a person might not want to have it done this way? Are there things to be aware of? I think the thing to consider is that it's one of the newer treatments. So while the clinical trials and research that has been done um, demonstrates that it's safe, we don't have um, as long of a a follow-up term. You know, the patients have not been followed for 20 or 30 years as they have been for other means of treatment. So um, I think the key is that in offering the treatment, we're making a careful decision in patient selection and deciding who's eligible. And the patient is also um, agreeable to having a treatment that's a little bit newer. Okay, great. Well, I've got some more questions for you, but let me remind listeners, uh, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with surgeon Lisa Lai and radiation oncologist Anna Shapiro about intraoperative radiation therapy for breast cancer. Um, I wanted to see if I can get you to walk me through sort of the process for this, like the day of the procedure. Once you've um, selected a patient and she's ready for this, um, does she come in that morning and go home that night, or how does it work? Mm-hmm. So um, she would come in, you know, in the morning, and um, sometimes uh, procedures are needed by the radiologist first. So if it's a tiny tumor that we cannot feel on exam, that may need to be localized by the radiologist. Um, there may also be a procedure to identify a lymph node under the arm that we need to check um, to see if the cancer has spread. So that's all done before the operating room. Uh, and are those imaging scans, Dr. Shapiro? Or how? Yes, they're imaging scans and sometimes um, small interventional procedures by the radiologist. Okay. All right. Yep. Then she would meet with the entire team, um, the surgeon, the radiation oncologist, the anesthesiologist, the nurses, and other staff at, who are participating in the procedure. We would go back to the operating room. The patient would be under anesthesia, so fully asleep, and um, we would check uh, the lymph node. Um, so a lymph node or two would be removed, checked by the pathologist. We would make sure that the cancer has not spread there. And then we would remove the tumor and insert. You said, and let me just interrupt. You yes. said tumor, but could it be more than one tumor that you're working on, or is it typically one? Okay. No, this gotcha. would just be for one tumor. Okay. And um, so once that tumor is out, we would then put a balloon into the empty space. Then the radiation oncologist would come, connect that to a machine, which delivers the dose. And the treatment would take around 10 minutes. After that, we would withdraw the balloon and completely close up the empty space, close the skin with sutures that are under the, sorry, stitches under the skin that are completely dissolvable. And um, the patient awakes from anesthesia, goes to recovery for about an hour, and then gets to go home. So this is, um, the patient is is open, the the wound is open when you're applying the radiator or the balloon. So you're actually physically setting the balloon in there. Right where the tumor was. Yeah. And that allows the dose to be given right to that spot. So both of you are at the patient's bedside. Mm -hmm. I mean, working together um, in the OR for this procedure. That's correct. And that's one of the benefits of um, this procedure is that you can really visualize what your target is. Now, Dr. Shapiro, are there side effects from getting such a concentrated dose of radiation all at once? There could be some minor side effects. Um, They're very similar to what we normally would see with external beam radiation, but to a more limited area. 
So the main side effects we would expect would be some redness on the skin surface. Um, sometimes you can get um, slightly pronounced scarring in the surgical cavity. But that's pretty much the extent of uh, what was described in the clinical trials. Um, overall, patients have expressed a very um, excellent uh, cosmesis. Over 90% of patients in the cl clinical trial were very happy with their cosmetic outcome. Okay, great. And then it doesn't sound like the recovery is much different um, than just, just surgery alone, right? Exactly. You go home that evening and mm -hmm. recover. Mm -hmm. Now, um, let me ask you this, Dr. Lai. Does chemotherapy fit into this still um, sometimes? Sometimes, yes. Um, so the surgery and the radiation are the local treatments of the breast. Um, but the decision for chemotherapy is made um, when we have... Um, evidence that there's higher risk of recurrence, and we need something systemic for treatment. To, so to travel from your head to your toes, basically, treating any loose cancer cells that may be there. So while many of these patients are those with early stage breast cancer, favorable breast cancers, and they may not need chemotherapy, there are some who will still need chemotherapy after this procedure. Okay, and then um, endocrine therapy or hormone therapy, that might be part of a treatment plan as well yes. afterward, though. Yep, along the same lines for the chemotherapy, yeah. In addition to this intraoperative option, I know there's a range of other options for radiation therapy. How do you decide which is best for an individual patient? It's really tailored to each individual. The tumor, their priorities, um, what their work, family, travel situation may be, really trying to make it less intrusive, um, make, help them get through the treatment in the best possible way, you know, less interruption to their work schedule, to their family obligations. Well, I appreciate you explaining all of this. Yeah, thank, thank you for, you having, for having, us. having us. My guests have been surgeon Dr. Lisa Lai and radiation oncologist Dr. Anna Shapiro. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, which breast cancer patients might be able to skip chemotherapy? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The recent headlines grabbed our attention about a study that showed many women with breast cancer may not need to undergo chemotherapy, but there's much more to the story. And here to help explain it is Dr. Abby Rami Siva Piragasam. She goes by Dr. Abby Siva. She's a medical oncologist at the Upstate Cancer Center, and I thank you for being here, Dr. Siva. Sure, Amber, anytime. Well, let's start by asking, were there patients from Upstate who were part of this study? Yes, yes. We are very proud to say that um, the study enrolled about 10,000-plus uh, patients all over the uh, world, and we, we did contribute to this study, and we still have some patients who are actively in, enrolled in this study um, ongoing. Um, they're being followed for their outcomes, so we are very proud to say that. So it's an international study. Can you um, kind of describe how it was done? Because it's over a course of many years, right? Right. This is over more than like nine to ten years. They followed these patients for a long time. Um, so the reason why they, they uh, wanted to do this study was because um, certain types uh, of breast cancer patients, uh, the, recently we are learning that they could avoid chemotherapy. Again, it's not for all comers, but um, when patients have hormone-positive breast cancer, and if they don't have advanced stages such as lymph node positive disease, um, there is a subset of patients who will benefit from chemotherapy, but majority of patients might not have to go through that route. And to tease this out, to tease out the patients who really needed chemo versus who could not be, um, who, who could not have to go through chemo, uh, they came up with this assay called Oncotype. And this particular study, what they were looking for um, is when patients fall onto this, what we call the intermediate group, 
Um, do they really need chemotherapy or not? That's the question this study was trying to answer. We already knew that when patients fall on the low-risk group, we can safely avoid chemotherapy, whereas when patients fall on the high-risk group, we definitely have to recommend chemotherapy. However, the intermediate group was sort of a gray zone all along, and it was a very it was challenging for physicians to uh, make a decision about chemotherapy because we really didn't know what to do up until this study came out on the 3rd of June. Um, what they did was they randomized half of the patient to chemotherapy and endocrine therapy and half of the patient to just endocrine therapy alone. And after following them for more than nine years, they found out that they both did very well. Both groups did very well. So we know we can safely now avoid chemotherapy in this group of patients. But they also found out there's a subset of young women who are younger than 50 years old might still derive some benefit from chemotherapy. So there is a little nuance to that. But nevertheless, you received, you got a lot of data to help you and infor- inform you on which women, which patients would benefit from having the chemo along with the right, therapy. Right, exactly. Um, we are now more confident. This is very personalized treatment for each patient based on their score and we think now we are able to spare about 70% of the patients who would fall in this category from chemotherapy. 70%. That's why I was going to ask how many women this applies to. So we're talking about women who have a hormone-positive breast cancer mm-hmm. and that it's not an advanced stage, cancer. Right. Stage. So um, 50% of the time when somebody's diagnosed with breast cancer, they have this hormone-positive lymph node negative, which is not advanced stage cancer. So among those 50%, um, we can spare about 70% of the patients from chemotherapy, and only 30% would benefit from chemotherapy after the study. Okay, and you mentioned, though, there's still a little subset of the younger women, under 50 Mm -hmm. women, um, that are still part of this that maybe it does make sense to do chemotherapy right, for. Right, Do we know why the age difference or what? Yeah. Uh, again, the speculation is that we know younger patients tend to have more aggressive types of breast cancer, and therefore um, aggressive types of breast cancer usually respond well to chemotherapy. And that would be the reason why that subset of patients derived more benefit from chemotherapy. So in younger women, the cutoffs are a little different. So just to give you a a rough ballpark on the scores that we are talking about, anything less than 10 is considered the low risk group. 10 to 25 is that intermediate group that they were studying in this uh, particular Taylor RX study. Um, So we know anybody who's above 50 years old, the score of 10 to 25, they can still avoid chemotherapy. However, if it is a younger woman less than 50 years old, any score above 15, we would like to give them chemotherapy. So the cutoffs are a little different for that young group. Now, when you mention these numbers, the 10, the 10 to 25, the Mm -hmm. 15, does that apply to that oncotype test? Right, exactly. So these scores are something we derive from the oncotype assay. And the way how it's done is there's only one lab in the country that will be running this test. What we do after the patient goes through surgery, we send a little piece of their tumor specimen to to this specific lab, and then in usually about three weeks' time, we'll get the score back. And the score can range from zero to 100. Huh. Okay. So is this is this like a biopsy? It's a sample from right. surgery. Right. This is a sample from surgery. So it's very personalized, personalized to their particular cancer. And is it, so it's looking at the genes? Right. So it's called a 21-gene assay because they're looking at 21 genes that are important for breast cancer proliferation, which is dividing and spreading. Um, So based on the score, the higher the score is, the higher the risk of the cancer coming back in the future. So we already know when the score is about 25, their risk is high enough that we have to include chemotherapy part of our treatment plan. And so this is very specific to the individual woman, exactly. this test. Would it um, inform you on her children? 
as well because it's a genetic test or not? No, this is okay. not a genetic test. This is just a specific test to her tumor, to the tumor. only. I gotcha. This is not looking at their genomic, uh, like the usual genetic tests that we talk about, like BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation. Those are called germline mutations that somebody's born with. Those are tested very differently. These are called somatic mutations that are particular to the tumor tissue only. So tumor specific. Right. Wow. Right. Very space agey, it sounds like. But we've, this test has been around for a few years, oh, right? Yeah. No, more. Yeah, it, it's been around for more than 10 years. We've been using it. But like I said, it's that intermediate group we didn't know what to do with. But we knew the high-risk people definitely needed chemotherapy for many years. So let me ask about chemotherapy because for, for decades we've heard that, you know, chemo is the treatment for cancer. Mm-hmm. So and it, and it kills cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So why, why are we trying not to give it to patients? Right. No, very good question. So chemotherapy, we knew that it did save a lot of patients' lives and, you know, we use it for all types of cancers. But there, there's definitely a cost to it. There's, a, there's side effects that come with chemotherapy, such as infections, sepsis, um, nausea, vomiting, um, you know, alteration of your kidney functions, liver function, hair loss, neuropathy, which is like tingling and numbness in your hands and feet. So there are definitely side effects involved with chemotherapy. So if, if we could tease out patients who might not really benefit from chemotherapy, we don't have to really expose them to it. Again, that doesn't mean that we could spare everybody from chemotherapy. We know this is a specific subset of patients that we are looking at. Okay. And some of the things are happening currently when you're given the chemo, the side effects, but then there's some that are longer term, right? Very true. Very true. So long-term risk, again, not uh, very high in terms of frequency, about less than 1% of the chance certain chemotherapies can even cause blood disorders, leukemias, things like that. So definitely we are worried. Yeah. All right. Well, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Abby Siva. She's a medical oncologist at the Upstate Cancer Center. And we're talking about the recent study that grabbed headlines um, talking about how some women with breast cancer may not need to undergo chemotherapy. But I also wanted to ask you about the endocrine therapy, because that seems to be applicable to all of the women in this group, right? Right. So... Do you have to decide whether a woman needs the endocrine therapy or do they all get some form? Right. So they they all get it because if you see, um, like I mentioned before, hormone positive breast cancers were the only patients included in this study. So when when I say hormone positive breast cancer, what it means is that their breast cancer is actually driven by the estrogens and progesterones in their body. So the hormonal therapy, what what the, the role of hormonal therapy is to suppress the amount of estrogen or progesterone that they are producing in their body. So in a premenopausal young women, the source of estrogen is coming from the ovaries. So we use medications to suppress the ovaries and we use medications to block their estrogen receptors, such as tamoxifen that people might have heard of. But in postmenopausal women, you would wonder where is this estrogen coming right. from because their ovaries are not really making it. So that the source of estrogen in a in a postmenopausal woman is from fat tissue and from the adrenal glands. So the cholesterol in our body can be converted to androgens and then to estrogens. So we use medications called aromatase inhibitors to block that conversion. So we are pretty much decreasing the amount of estrogen production in their body. So does that prevent cancer from coming back? Right. Or exactly. that's what it's supposed to do. Exactly. So these are all um, these are all patients who are cured by surgery. So the role of our therapy, either endocrine therapy or chemotherapy, is to prevent this breast cancer from coming back. Even though we know the surgeon was able to remove the breast with uh, the tumor uh, with good margins. Our concern is, can there be microscopic cells left behind in the breast or elsewhere in the body that could come back as a problem down the road, even sometimes five years or even 10 years down the road, they can come back. So by continuing, by giving them long-term hormonal therapy or even chemotherapy, we are trying to prevent this risk of coming back. Well, it sounds like there's a lot uh, lot more options um, and a lot more things to consider for a woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. today. Walk me through, once a, once a woman's diagnosed with breast cancer, what does an oncologist do to help 
her decide what is the best treatment for her. Sure, sure. So, you know, first first of all, they, they have an abnormal mammogram and they undergo a biopsy and the biopsy shows breast cancer. And it, the biopsy will tell us what type of breast cancer. Is it hormone positive breast cancer, hormone negative, or there's a one, there's another one called HER2 positive. So once we know that information, uh, we can tailor our treatment plan according to the subtype and the stage of the breast cancer. First, um, if it is an early stage, stage one to three is considered early stage, patients um, can go for surgery and then we consider radiation therapy in certain situations and hormonal therapy in hormone-positive breast cancers and then chemotherapy in patients um, who have high-risk breast cancers such as triple negative or HER2-positive or high-risk hormone-positive breast cancer. And so that's a course of treatment that would take several months? Yes, yes. It can take several months. Um, so you know, surgery and healing, um, which surgery to, he- you know, from the time the patient has a surgery, um, the healing takes place about three to four weeks time. They're pretty much ready for their next line of treatment. If someone needs chemotherapy, the second step would be to go through chemotherapy. And then the third step would be the radiation therapy. So um, if if you have the surgery, then you do that test, that, mm-hmm. that oncotype. Yeah. So you have to wait, but that's being done while they're healing from the surgery, exactly, right? Exactly, so exactly. It doesn't take extra time. Seems like it's pretty well orchestrated. Right, right. Um, now, you mentioned the hormonal therapy. That's the endocrine therapy. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, right? Right. Um, does that continue after the chemotherapy or... Is right. it a lifelong thing? or so, so the hormonal therapy will be started after they're done with their radiation and chemotherapy. And once you start the hormonal therapy, for premenopausal women, we recommend it for 10 years. We know it's beneficial for the first 10 years. Um, whereas for postmenopausal women, we recommend it for five years. However, there are studies now looking at the role of hormonal therapy for 10 years in postmenopausal women as well. So again, it's a dynamic field right now. A lot of research going on. Some supported, some are not really supportive. So the question is still up in the air for that. So the results of that study in the future might change the exactly. way the treatment's yeah. being done. So before we go, let's just reiterate um, this: the results of this study that we've been talking about, about whether chemotherapy is necessary that only applies to a certain group of women. Um, this is for a specific group of patients who fell on that intermediate group based on the Oncotype test. So this is not for applicable for all breast cancer patients. So we still know that there is a, a subset of patients who would benefit from chemotherapy, which is the, I think that, sh- that should be um, clearly emphasized for our listeners. Good to know. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Abby Siva from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Sometimes healers need to be reminded that compassion, too, is part of a physician's offering to a patient. Elaine Mansfield sent us a chapter from her memoir, published in the fall of 2014, that poignantly demonstrates this. Her essay is entitled, Only Kindness Makes Sense. In this excerpt, her husband Vic is in the hospital with incurable lymphoma. A pulmonologist has been called at the end of his day to do a procedure. He is angry, rough in his voice and gestures. He scares his students and his patient. Someone has added the procedure to the end of this man's long day. He doesn't hide his unhappiness about it. His students are tense and cautious as they follow his brusque directions. Sterilize Vic's back. Insert a needle into the fluid-filled space around Vic's lungs. Unable to speed the suctioning process, the doctor paces around Vic's bed, his resentment simmering under the surface. Vic looks up at me with sad, exhausted eyes. I want to vaporize this doctor. Will you read the poem about kindness, Vic asks me in a whisper. Now, I ask? Yes, now, please. I think he's lost his mind, but ask one of the students to hold him steady for a moment. I get his recently published book, Tibetan Buddhism and Modern Physics. Resume my position across the tray table. I read the poem that ends Vic's book. It's by Naomi Shihab Nye, and it's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment 
like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. My voice chokes with tears. The pulmonologist's jaw loosens and his hard voice softens. The students sigh and reach out towards Vic's back with tenderness. My belly relaxes. Vic takes a deep breath. Twilight dissolves the hard stainless edges of the equipment and a humming grace descends over the room. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, understanding thyroid conditions. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.